Welcome to the OC Endurance Podcast. My name is Chris, along with my co-hosts, Tony and Austin. And uh, this week, we're going to skip our roundtable where we catch up with everybody. And uh, we're going straight to our guest because we have a great guest and uh, he's got tons of stories. Our guest is named Jen Manton. And I met him a couple of years ago now. And he, he did my bike fit. I was referred to him by a friend and uh, didn't know Tony at the time. And then slowly learned about the relationship with Tony and all of those things. And uh, it's uh, great to have you on, Jim. Hey, thank you so much. I appreciate the invitation. I didn't say, but what we're going to talk about a little bit is arrow fitting, right? Bike fitting. You bet. Bike fit, aero, aerodynamics. You yeah. Name it. And Tony, I mean, you guys, tell me a little bit about your relationship, Tony. Uh, how did you get connected with Jim? Yeah, when I was first entering the sport, uh, I'd say 2012, I obviously just could pick up my bike and, you know, got a, a half-ass fit like most, I think, triathletes do from the bike shop. And, uh, you know, immediately I'm trying to, you know, find gains and I'm, I'm, I've always been pretty competitive. So I'm trying to find that next, what's that next thing that's going to make me better. And I kept reading about bike fits and how, how it makes such a difference. And that's probably the best bang for your buck that you can find. And I'm reading through triathlete magazine and, and flip a page and there's an advertisement for, um, I don't even remember what it was. I think it was like a helmet or something. But it was some pro talking about going and visiting gym and and uh, and aero sports. And so I looked them up and I realized they're right in our backyard. And so at that point, I just scheduled a meeting with uh, with Jim and he did my first initial bike fit on my old bike down in the uh, the Carson Velodrome. And the rest is kind of history. I had a relationship ever since. Yeah, I, I can't mean, that believe was... you've had to deal with me that long. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that was a, an amazing spot you had. I mean, obviously, aerosports, I mean, I want to get into kind of some of that kind of where you've transitioned to. And um, I guess maybe we can start with a little bit of your history. Um, and I know you were a cyclist and kind of how that evolved. Yeah, you know, I, I was a cyclist uh, in the 80s, um, spent not very long in Europe because uh, just didn't want to uh, didn't want to be there as, a, as an American with uh, who didn't speak the language or eat the food or really know anybody. Uh, so I came back. Um, I studied kinesiology at San Diego State, and uh, then I became a cop, <laughs> which wow, is a whole long story unto itself. Uh, and uh, after I retired from that, uh, during that time, I was always bike fitting friends, family, teammates. It was just a constant thing. Bike fit wasn't necessarily a thing back then, but all through the '80s and '90s, I I was fitting people to bikes. And then um, when I retired from law enforcement. Um, like all bike geeks that are foolish, I opened a bike shop and uh, in, in Irvine. So it was called Sand Canyon Cyclery. It's still there called Irvine Bicycles today. But um, but I hated owning a bike shop. I despised owning a bike shop. I, I really did. Um, I just was not a retail guy. Um, but the fit business continued to build, continued to build. I had a bunch of pros coming to see me, both cyclists and triathletes. And so I got to a point where I didn't want to own the shop anymore, but I wanted to make a business out of bike fit. And at the time, no one was really doing that. There was there was maybe a handful of guys anywhere in the world that could make a living doing bike fit. But I figured I was going to give it a shot. So I sold the bike shop. I think that was uh, we're, we're to 2008 at this point. Uh, I sold the bike shop and um, my my original name was Final Fit. 
Um, and now I, I laugh at every bike fitter's got fit in their business name somewhere. It's just so hokey at this point. Um, but uh, then uh, again, the business grew immediately. Uh, I was working out of Fountain Valley and, uh, and it just kind of got overwhelmed to be honest with you with business. And then something completely changed and, and, uh, uh, aerodynamics has always been a big part of, of bike fit, especially, um, elite bike fit. But, um, there was a, a new system devised to measure aerodynamics outside the wind tunnel. And it was done on a velodrome. This was called the alpha mantis system. And they reached out to me and said, Hey, we will bring it to LA, uh, first in the world. If you will come to the velodrome and, and be a part of it. So I did, I, uh, I moved my business up to the velodrome. Um, and we were the very first people to use the velodrome aero testing system that, uh, became worldwide eventually and, and became the way to aero test for quite a while. So, and then what I time frame was that? Huh? That was 20, well, 2012. Okay. That was 2012. Um, and we changed the name of the, the company to Aero Sports. It's spelled E-R-O, but it's uh, pronounced Aero. And then the rest is history. Uh, you know, I, I uh, didn't understand anything really about aerodynamics. I, I had been in the wind tunnel a few times for sure with pro athletes, but I just kind of, you know, absorbed everything. I wasn't running anything at the time. And and uh, and I really didn't understand how the velodrome system worked, to be honest with you. I didn't understand any of it. So here I was surrounded by all these these world famous statisticians and aerodynamicists. And I, I thought, what the heck am I doing here, man? I don't belong here. Um, but uh, it was like an episode of the Big Bang Theory. All these guys were geniuses, but none of them could just speak to the average Joe. Right. Like, you know, they they would do algorithms in their head that would take me a month to do and I'd still get it wrong. So I quickly realized my job was to dumb that down, because if I could make it, if I could, if I could take aerodynamics and bring it down to a level that I could understand, then I knew everybody could understand it. Um, and so that's what I did. And and the rest is history. It just uh, it just took off from there. Yeah. Now, I mean, obviously you work with lots of age groupers, but you've worked with, I know a couple, I mean, you can share some of the more, um, I don't know which ones are public or not, but I mean, last weekend you were with Holly Lawrence, right? Yep. Doing testing. Uh, I know you've worked with Lionel Sanders. You've done stuff with, uh, Tony was saying the, is it the Olympic team you've, you've worked with uh, cycling US or U S cycling? Yeah. Uh, US, yeah. The U S Olympic team, actually a couple other countries, Olympic teams. Um, it's hard to list, you know, it sounds ridiculous and I don't want to sound, uh, too braggadocious. So, um, oh, please I've, do. Uh, please athletes do. I've, athletes I fit have won now 27 world time trial championships or elite world time trial championships, um, both on the track and on the road. Um, pretty much you name, you name a triathlete and I've, I've seemingly worked with them. That's not true anymore. Cause I've sort of semi-retired, but, um, but that's not true either. I'm not retired at all. So, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I've just been really lucky. Actually, my first real pro triathlete back in the day was right when Heather Jackson turned pro. Um, she oh. was really the first pro triathlete I worked with and, and I still own my bike shop at the time. And, uh, and I fit her. And from there, every triathlete started coming to me. It was unbelievable. And then once we could aero test outside a wind tunnel, look out, then, you know, it, it got to be ridiculous. So, um, yeah, it's been fun. It's been an, it's been an incredible ride and, um, you know, 
I could sit here for an hour and, and name drop, but I'd much prefer working with age groupers, to be honest with you. You, you make so much more a difference for them than you do any pro. So, Yeah, the gains are probably so much more significant, right? They are, yeah. yeah. And you're not restricted by... Um, by um, uh, I can't think of the word I want. By sponsorships. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you're not, yeah. you know, it, there are there are athletes I've fit for over a decade that I actually never fit to a bike that fit them because of sponsorships, right? And right. you just have to deal with that. And uh, that's just the way it is. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, it's fairly public that uh, like Lionel has a really struggle to fit on his bike, right? And they've, you've got Canyon's made custom stuff here and there. And yeah. So. Yeah, that, that bike is a great bike. It's actually one of my favorite bikes in the world, to be honest with you. Um, but yeah, it was too short for him. It's it's the it's virtually every bike is too short, to be honest with you. Um, and so yeah, they made a custom piece for him, and and then that kind of made the bike handle funny. And that's really where that saga began because um because that bike didn't handle the way he wanted, he switched over to their their old bike and then to their time trial version of the bike and it was you know and anything he does is going to get a ton of press and uh i think i got blamed at some point for taking him off his bike and i had nothing to do with it (laughs) um i'm not his bike fitter i'm his aerodynamic guy but um but uh yeah you know you deal with that you deal with sponsorships all the time and and uh you just you just work with what you got sometimes yeah, I think um, I threw it out there to our our OCE audience on our Discord and just asked if there were a couple questions. And, and one of the very, very first questions was, and I think that's the common thing is, as an age grouper, the middle of the packer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they feel comfortable on their bike. They got it at a bike shop, right? They don't know whether they could be more comfortable, but you know, they're they're getting their rides in. They're doing the time. What is the benefit to getting a bike fit and then to doing aero testing, right? They just don't really know how yeah. big or how important it is. Well, it's interesting. We're going through a little bit of a transition right now. First of all, bike fit is, is so extremely important. And unfortunately, and this is a whole probably episode unto itself, good tri-bike specific fit is really tough to find anywhere in the world. Um, it just is. Um, people say or think they're comfortable on a tri bike until you start really asking them questions. And, and then all the pains that they feel that they think are normal are not normal. It should actually feel really, really good to ride a bike and, and especially your tri bike. You should be able to stay in your aero position for virtually any length of time. And most people can't, you know, you ask them, how long can you stay in aero? Eh, 10 minutes. And I got to get up and stretch 15 minutes, 30 minutes. That's not a good bike fit. That's a bad bike fit. And so um, bike fit is extremely important, but it is difficult to find. And, um, that's been unfortunate. I think it has to do with, we're probably not educating people well enough on how to do bike fit, but, um, so your biggest gains are going to come from your bike fit. It's, it's not just speed and not just comfort. It's, you know, I always tell people all the time, if my job were to make you a faster cyclist, that's easy. I can do that. I, you know, I fit all these world championships to, to the arrow position. I can make you really fast and then you can have a nice walk afterwards because you're not going to run off that position, right? That's not going to happen for you. Um, so my job is to make you a faster triathlete. And the way I do that is make you as fast and as efficient as, and as comfortable as possible. So you can run off that bike better than you've ever run before. So, you know, for instance, if I, 
if I make you, if you come to see me and I make you on average two miles an hour faster, which is a massive bump, but it's pretty common, I might argue with you, don't go two miles an hour for the same effort. Maybe go on average one mile an hour for a lot less effort. The energy you will save on that bike, still, still going fast, but not using nearly as much effort, you, you, will, you will gain far more time on the run than you will have ever gained on your bike, right? And so, you know, that's how I explain it to people. It's not just, I can't do anything about your swim, sorry, but I can make both your bike and your run better. That's my job. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, I bought my first bike on eBay with really little to no knowledge of, okay, this is my inseam. And, and, you know, then I, I dealt with that for years of it not fitting right. And I actually Mm -hmm. worked with you to try and make it fit my speed concept. And, um, then did I only learn that, okay, a pre-bike fit or a pre-bike purchase fit is something that is key because yeah. I get so many people on my videos or through Instagram, whatever. They're like, how do you like your Canyon? I want a Canyon, right? Canyon is a marketing machine, right? So everybody yeah, wants to ride a great. Canyon now, right? But it's a great product. Everybody wants to know how I like it. And it's like, you know what? It doesn't matter how I like it. You know, I'm all, I'm the, now since seeing you, uh, it's like, you need a pre bike purchase yeah. fit. Go in there yeah. without a manufacturer, and, and they will tell you, like yourself, give me a list of what bikes work. That's right. And so for, so for people who can't kind of picture that, what we do is you come into the studio without a bike and we put you on what's called a fit bike or a dynamic fit bike. And it's, it's a stationary bike, kind of like what you, you see Wahoo or Stages or, or whoever selling these days that people are using for indoor cycling. But it's sort of like that where we can adjust saddle height, fore and aft. We can judge, judge the, or adjust the reach of your, your arrow bar, the height of your arrow bar, the angle of your arrow bar, all those things we can adjust to find your, your personal position, right? It's not some generic position that everybody should be in. It's what's your best position. And then once we found that and we have what are called the fit coordinates, which are really all your contact points on the bike, we measure them. Then we can tell you, okay, here are the bikes that fit you. And it might not always be the bike you want, right? Like you might go in there going, oh, I want a, I want a, I want a canyon. And it's like, sorry, the canyon doesn't fit you, but, but here's what does. And, and that's our job is to, is to, to be your neutral sort of uh, voice of reason where, look, you know, look, Chris, your bike, that bike does not fit you. Sorry, but these bikes do. Here's a list. And so choose from those. And then even then, well, you know, I, these days will tend to give you my opinion on what, what I think are the better bikes that are out there and what might work best for you. Um, and, and that is based on your experience. It's based on your goals. It's, it's, it's based on the, the, the depth of your wallet and all those things. Uh, and I'll help you. And, uh, and, and, and a good bike fitter should do that. And that's the difficulty of going to a bike shop. They have no incentive to sell you anything other than what they sell. I was just going to say it's, that it's, it's really tough, you know, and, and you can't blame them. They're not, they're not in the, you know, they're not in the business to sell other people's bikes. They're in the business to sell their bikes. And so you can't blame them for it. And they're not necessarily being dishonest. They're just telling you, Hey, here are the bikes we carry. And these are the bikes that fit. Um, it's not always that great. I'll be honest. Sometimes it's like, well, here's a bike we need to sell. So, whoa, lo and behold, that bike fits you. Um, but hopefully those days are gone. Really, nobody carries tri bikes in stock all that much anymore. So that's the hard part. You can't even go yeah. to a bike shop no. to look 
at a bike, right? Nope. Yet alone get fit on one or get a recommendation. Yeah. You just can't find a store anymore that no, carries They don't them. know how to sell them. They don't know how to fit them and they don't know how to sell them. And again, it's not their fault. Um, they're just not being, you know, educated well enough um, on how to fit a tri bike and how, you know, what triathletes really want. The best thing a bike shop can do is have one person who's a triathlete in that store that really knows their stuff. Because anytime you walk in, Chris, I guarantee you, and Tony, this is certainly true. If you walk into a bike shop, you know far more about the product than they do when it comes to anything triathlon related. You know far more than they do. Um, and so they just don't want to deal with it. They, they really don't. It's too complex for them. Tri-bike fit is the most complex fit. Um, you know, it's not road. It's not time trial. It's not track. It, triathlon, because we're not dealing really with any restrictions at all is, with rules, is by far the most complex fit that we do. And it's just, you know, I, th I think it's training where we're lacking. And that's why it's so hard to get a good bike fit. Ask any woman. Women are in excruciating pain all the time on their bikes. And they just think, well, of course it hurts. I'm riding a bike. You know, of course my saddle hurts. I'm riding a bike. No, it's actually not supposed to hurt you at all. It should feel really good to ride. And I tell people all the time, the best thing you could ever say about a saddle is, I wasn't even thinking about my saddle. If you can say that about your saddle, Either your fit or your saddle, and likely both are pretty darn good. Did yeah, I, I even I answer pretty, your question? Yeah, one hundred percent. Always. Um, <laughs> I, I think I was some. I was I was very fortunate when I first actually got my my bike, and I was looking to purchase my first bike. Rock and Road in Irvine actually had a fairly competitive triathlete working there, and he was one of their mechanics, and he basically set me up and and talked me through things and got me started, and and where his knowledge kind of. Uh, fell off, then it was up to me to go research or research more. Uh, but yeah, as you're talking about, you know, us going into bike shops and probably being the most knowledgeable there, there's been multiple times where I'll go to pick up, you know, either it's like some CO2 or a tube and some triathletes asking questions and you can see the glazed look in their eyes. And I'm like, hey, let me help you out here. Like, what do you, what do you need? You know, and, and, yeah. and try and help them out as best as I can. And you know, the bike shops are always very thankful when I, when I can do that. So yeah, yeah I always feel bad <laughs> just rolling my tri bike into a bike shop to get serviced. I always yeah. feel like, like shit, yeah. you know, the guy probably peed on it, you know, he hasn't <laughs> cleaned it. Right. It's like, <laughs> like, I don't want to touch that thing. That's funny. Yeah. They don't, well, they're just complicated to work on, you know, the, the wiring, the, the cabling is much more difficult than, than a traditional bike. Although that's not as true as it used to be, but, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's a lot of work for them and they know it. And triathletes by the nature of the sport tend to be pretty demanding customers, not, not obnoxious or rude, but they, you know, you, you, you want it done right. You know, God forbid, you know, you actually want the job done right. <laughs> so, you know, that that's a demanding customer and, and they don't like, you know, they yeah. don't want to We're work. always showing up like four days before we leave the cross country <laughs> yeah. and see well, like, yeah. I need this service. Can I get it tomorrow? Yeah. <laughs> that's, you know, there's a secret to that. I'll, I'll explain it later, how you, how you get that done. But yeah, it's, uh, it's tough. It, it really is. You know, what's funny is Orange County used to have the greatest tri-bike shop in the world back in the 90s. Um, and, and it was called Edge Cycle Sports. It was in Laguna Hills. And yes. at any given day, you would walk into that shop and, you know, Paula Newby Frazier would just be hanging out in the shop, you know, and people probably don't even know who Paula Newby Frazier oh is anymore. But, <laughs> but this was back when triathlon was really centered in San Diego County, the birthplace of triathlon. And, 
And like I said, on any given day, you, you could have a half dozen of the top triathletes in the world just hanging out in that shop. That was, it was amazing. Amazing. Shop. It was. That it was, was where so tri bike transport. You took your bike there yeah. to get shipped to whatever race you were going. They were the tri bike yeah. transport shop. They were. Yeah, was, that was a great shop. To this day, I you know, and having even created a bike shop that that I was pretty proud of, I still think Edge Cycle Sports in its heyday is the greatest bike shop I've ever seen. Um, but it's really hard to keep that going at, at that level. Is, is really tough because what happens is, you know, you usually start a shop with a couple of guys who are super highly motivated and it goes great, but those guys are working seven days a week, you know, 14, 16 hours a day. And it, it's, it's like clockwork either, you know, one of two things happens either right at the three year mark, they just burn out. They're just done. They can't do it anymore. Or they start expanding and they're growing and they bring in new employees and those employees just aren't, you know, they're just, they're, they are not as, as, uh, you know, as, as knowledgeable. They're not as dedicated. There's not as bought in as the original guys. And all of a sudden that shop just starts going downhill and, um, it's, it's, it's really difficult to do. And I, I, and most people don't, you know, so many people open bike shops thinking it'll be fun. It's a really, really hard business to make any kind of money at. Yeah. I think it's similar, Tony, you have some experience in it. Like, CrossFit gyms. I came from kind of yeah. that weightlifting CrossFit, right? The the guy gets his cert, he starts a gym, and he is working seven days a week teaching every class, right? And then slowly they try and bring people in, and and yeah, it's you, it's a job for people, right? And it's, yeah. you lose that passion, uh, That's that right. drive. It's absolutely right. It's really tough. So, so yeah, you know, where all the tri bikes gone, tri bike shops gone. You know, that's it's it's a tough business, and 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 there's. There's more money in selling road bikes and there's more money in selling bikes that are under a thousand dollars. And that is not a, a customer that is very demanding. And so that's where the money's at in bike shops. The, you know where you make money in bike shops? Selling inner tubes. That's how you make money in bike shops. Service. <laughs> you know, that's how you make money in bike shops. And so it's not selling bikes. In fact, I always joke, bikes are what kill bike shops. The overhead of bikes, the, the, the square footage that is necessary to display all those bikes is is just it, it's what kills bike shops and and honestly I I still haven't seen at least here in Southern California I still haven't seen it done the way I think it should be done because you know these bikes you know they're you know the the lowest price tri bikes four thousand dollars right on average I think people are spending probably eight thousand dollars on their tri bike. Yeah. You should be walking into a boutique with just a couple of bikes on display and it should be just this amazing shopping experience for you where you have your own sort of personal person taking care of you and everything's built to your spec. And no one has really done that yet. I don't know why. No, um, Canyon's kind of getting close. I mean, I think spe- uh, Rock and Road kind of being the specialized shop, I remember them yeah. having like you could walk in and see a ten thousand dollar bike on display, yeah. right? But yeah, you wouldn't yeah. see that in any other bike shop really. No, but my point being Nowadays, you don't need a size run of those bikes, right? You need right. a couple of display bikes because most people are – the way I would do it is – and I actually propose this to Specialized to create what's called an S-Works experience where if you walked into a bike into a, a Specialized store and you wanted S-Works anything, I don't care if it's a pair of S-Works gloves, you get walked into a special area of that shop and you have your own private shopper and you are treated – like you are buying the most important thing in the world. And if it's a bike, you're put on a fit bike and your position is dialed 
and you're going to order that bike. And a week later, you're going to show up and that bike is just sitting there built to your spec with the right saddle and the right stem length and the right handlebar and the right length cranks. And it's going to be lit beautifully in that showroom for you as you walk in and just feel that magic of seeing your bike. That's how it should be done. And no one wants to do it. No one, you know, no one, you know, it should, you know, you're, you're not buying a Honda when you're buying a ten to $15,000 tri-bike. You're buying a Ferrari and it should feel like you're buying a Ferrari. Go into a Ferrari dealership and buy a Ferrari. You know, those of you who can, it's a whole different experience than going to your local Honda dealer. It's not the same. And it shouldn't be the same for, for these bikes, but Unfortunately, it is. So I, that's like I said. I mean, I've uh, always heard that it, the the markup is pretty low for for shops and stuff like that. Is there the, the margins really don't exist much? It's not that the margin is. If, if you know the margin, you go, "Wow, man, they're making a bunch of money off that bike." Until you add in all the costs that you don't understand, thus you know, paying the rent on that shop, paying someone just to even build that bike, which nowadays building a tri bike is a is a two to four hour process, right? And you're so you're paying somebody, you know, probably not a lot of money, but 20 bucks an hour, let's just say to build that bike. So there's, there's some, there's some money gone. It's, it's, it's all these, you know, it's, it's obviously the cost of operating that shop. It, so that margin goes away quick. And, and, and so it's, it's a tough model. That's why, you know, Canyon has been so successful with the direct to consumer model. Um, They're, they're actually making more off every sale than any, any other, any like specialized track, it doesn't matter. Even if track or specialized owns their store, Canyon is still making more money per sale, even though their bikes are cheaper than track or specialized are making. Right. Because, because Canyon, you know, so track and specialized, they sell that, they sell that bike to that shop at a, at a, at a wholesale price. Right. And, so that's what they're making on the bike. That's what Specialized and Trek are making on that bike. They're not making anything else. Whereas, and so they're, you know, so the, the bike shop itself is taking part of that margin. Well, Canyon's not giving up that margin. They're not giving up that margin at all. They're, 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 take, they're giving you a little discount and they're keeping the rest. So on average, they make far more per bike sale than, than Trek Specialized anybody does. That it's, it's a, fantastic business model and they've got everybody terrified they've got everybody terrified you notice everybody's starting to sell direct to consumer the problem is you can't sell through a shop and direct to consumer because you can't bring the price down right and once you're direct to consumer and you don't have the middleman anymore that price should come down but it you know but you try to buy a specialized online or a track or or even a quintana roo which I, i don't think they've quite figured out what they're doing yet but those prices should be lower because that middleman's not there. And so, sorry, uh, you know, where's my, where's, you know, you're, you're making enough money, you know, give me a little break too. So yeah, it's a, it's very complex. Yeah. Now, Jim, kind of bringing you back to the aerodynamic side of things. Um, Mm -hmm. obviously most people are very aware of wind tunnel testing and velodrome testing, but yet, you know, you, you test your athletes outdoors and can you explain a little bit why you've decided on that method versus yeah. the others and, uh, kind of the benefits of, of it? Yeah. So when the velodrome system, uh, system came out, the beauty of the velodrome was 
um, it reintroduced the athlete's interaction with the bike, right? When you go into a wind tunnel, it's like being on a stationary trainer. That bike is not moving underneath you. It's not the same interaction. It's why you feel differently riding indoors than outdoors, right? Your bike feels totally different to you because there's no interaction between you and the bike. Your bike is being held still. So when we got on the velodrome, that, that part of it was reintroduced and, and it was amazing. We got much more accurate drag numbers. The problem with the velodrome was it was never meant to be the final system. The final system was supposed to be testing outdoors with, a, with, a, with an aero sensor, a sensor that could measure your wind speed and yaw. Uh, you, can, you can call this a pitot tube, which is how you know aircraft know how fast they're going and what direction the wind is, is coming from with them. It's a, it's a pitot tube on a bike. That was always the holy grail of aero testing. Um, and so really the alpha Manus system on the track was just a stopgap. It was really developed, uh, in conjunction with the Canadian national team, really just to keep alpha Manus up and running while they tried to develop their aero sensor. Um, that, that was just the only way they could make any kind of money to, to keep themselves going. The problem is it was much, much harder to develop these aero sensors than anybody thought. Uh, everybody thought this was the next power meter. Um, everybody thought it'd be easy to do. But low-speed aerodynamics are really, really hard. High-speed aerodynamics are easy. We know what the wind is going to do over the wing of an airplane. We know what it's going to do uh, you know, at a, for a car at 60 miles an hour. A bike at 20 miles an hour, 25 miles an hour, it's, that's a whole different ballgame. And so, so most people kind of fell to the wayside, and these sensors just never became uh, a product, and, and I personally never thought they would. But... Two companies figured it out, and, and, and there'll be more coming, but two figured it out, and one was uh, Aerolab out of Canada. In fact, a lot of aerodynamic stuff comes out of Canada. I don't know why. Um, and so I was, again, like the Alpha Manus system, I was lucky enough. Alpha Manus was a Canadian company, actually. I was lucky enough to be the first user of it, the first beta user. And uh, anytime you're a beta user, you know, you got some hurdles, and it's a struggle. But they perfected it. And now we can measure wind speed and yaw, while yaw being any kind of crosswind you're, you're experiencing on the bike. And with a combination of your power and your speed and many, many other things into an algorithm, we can actually very accurately measure your aerodynamic drag. Uh, it's called CDA, or coefficient of drag area. It's really what are you presenting to the wind? That's what we're measuring. And so... I was just lucky enough to to be in the right place at the right time and 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 have the reputation I had to get that get that sensor, and this has always been the goal: get outside and measure people the way they actually ride their bikes, right? Because no matter what, even on a velodrome, nobody rode their bike on a velodrome the, the way they rode outside. Nobody, um, because a velodrome's kind of different to ride. It's it's got 45 degree bankings in the corner and you, you just can't ride the way you ride outside. So this was always the Holy grail. It's just, we're just now starting to realize it. And I was just lucky enough to, to, to already be in the game and be at the forefront of it. So my goal now is to get everybody out of these static fit studios, out of these static environments for testing and get them into the real world, even for bike fit where it's like, hey, stop trying things on a trainer. Let's get you outside where you can actually feel what those position changes are like. Can you actually ride that? Is it comfortable? Does it feel better? Can you produce power? And while you're, while you're feeling it, we're actually measuring the aerodynamics of it, right? And that has always been what we wanted to do. And, and so that's, you know, what 
now I want to I want to push this industry forward and uh, let's let's get outside and actually ride our bikes and, and we'll figure it out from there. Now, it, and your confidence in in this device from Aerolab, um, can you speak a little bit about what's kind of reaffirmed your confidence in that? I mean, yeah, I, I know you I can, have some stories, but I can tell you some of it. Um, some there of it go. I probably can't tell. Um, <laughs> so it was developed by a, kind of a very famous aerodynamicist named Chris Morton out of Canada. And it's all, you know, you can talk about it being wind tunnel tested and, and it is um, and approved. But um, let me see. I don't know how much I can tell here. Um, but I was I, I got the chance to show it to some of the um, the greatest aerodynamicists in the world who who work on projects that uh, that no one knows about. <laughs> and um that was a great experience for me, but the greatest was, you know, they were interested in it because, again, low-speed aerodynamics are really, really hard, and, and the military uh, is looking for uh, things that will help their drones fly more stable in, in the air, right? And they fly very slow, um, but they need to be in, a, in, in, in an environment and surveil that environment. And wind can have a huge effect on that, right? So if you're if you're looking through a camera on a drone and it's being pushed around by the wind and it's being pushed off course, and the pilot you're you're you know you're you're uh, relying on the pilot to course correct and they're doing a bunch of other stuff and that pilot of course is nowhere near that drone; they're thousands of miles away in an office. You it would help to have a device that could measure that wind speed and wind direction change, and then that drone could just self-correct. So. These people looked at this thing, they tested it, and they said, holy cow, it is spot on. This, this, is, this aero sensor is spot on. And so that for me was great, and uh, it gave me all the confidence in the world. And plus we did, you know, I've, I've, I've done a ton of wind tunnel testing. I've done a ton of velodrome testing. So I compared the numbers, and I know it worked well. And then finally, right before the Tokyo Olympics, now, we took people on the wind tunnel, we did velodrome testing, and we did outdoor testing. And the outdoor testing was easily, I mean, easily the best predictor of time, meaning it was easily the most accurate number we got. Because again, that person was actually riding their bike, right? It, they weren't, they weren't, you know, riding on a velodrome, they weren't being held still um, in a wind tunnel. No, they were riding their bike. And that's, that's really, for me, what what, what turned it around where I, I didn't question it anymore. Now it's just a matter of how accurate is your power meter because we do rely on your power meter. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I was going to ask, I mean, most triathletes have probably seen a bike in a, in a wind tunnel with the yeah. fans and, and they can picture what that is. Yeah. Um, I've seen what the, uh, the device looks like, but can you talk to what that is? You know, cause when I first imagined you talking about it, I, I thought of it more, like you needed sensors on around your body, right? Like yeah, multiple yeah. sensors, almost like the 3D bubbles, like balls. They, right? yeah, how do you? Yeah. How can you measure this? So I guess maybe talk to that because I think one of the things is there aren't very many wind tunnels, right? No. So a guy like me, I'm not going to go to a wind tunnel and get tested. But what you're doing is bringing this possibly to the masses, right? Yes, that's exactly making it what accessible. We're doing. Uh, accessible. Um, technologically and financially, right? That's, those are the two things. Because wind tunnels are very expensive. I mean, we have one of the greatest wind tunnels in the world in San Diego. The low-speed wind tunnel in San Diego is one of the most famous wind tunnels in the world. I actually thought about buying it at one point. But anyways, um, so, and I forgot the question. <laughs> but, uh, so really what this is all based on is something called virtual elevation. 
And some people know this as chung testing, where you can actually go outside and if you're really, really good, you can do a, a loop or even an out and back course and through, a, through some free online software or an algorithm that you can do on your own, you can kind of figure out your drag number through this what's called virtual elevation. And really all it is, is looking at how much power it's taking you to go a given speed, right? We don't really care what that power is. We don't care what your speed is. It's all it is, is calculating how much power is it taking you? So let's say, it, how much power is it taking you to go 20 miles an hour? Is it 220 watts? And then we make a change. And now to, to, to go 20 miles an hour, it's only taking you 215 watts, right? Well, that's because we made your aerodynamics better. And so, or your rolling resistance better or whatever. So that it, it's far more complex than that, don't get me wrong. But in the end, that's all we're doing is measuring how much power is it taking you to go the speed that you're going. And if we can make it so you're either going faster for the same power or you're going the same speed for less power, we've improved your aerodynamics. Um, and so we needed a we needed this pitot tube or this wind sensor because we needed to account for wind speed and wind direction. So for instance, if you're putting out 220 watts into a five mile an hour wind, right, a headwind, you're going to go one speed. But if you put out the same exact wattage into a 10 mile an hour head headwind, that's a whole different speed. Well, you didn't get worse aerodynamically. You're just fighting against more wind, and that has to be part of the calculation. And so once we had an accurate uh, speed, uh, um, air sensor to, 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 to account for all that, then that becomes part of the algorithm, and that's how we figured out, figure out your drag number. And, um, and it's been really cool. It's even, you know, it's even made us realize a lot of the little things we used to think were important really aren't being seen in the real world. And, and so, you know, pay attention to the big stuff first, and then you can work on the little things. But a lot of times the little things that, that we all thought were so important and still do really aren't that big of a deal. So anyway, I hope that answered your question. Yeah, Tom. well, and the question um, was kind of what is it? Right. You're, you, oh. I've seen it. Right. It's a small little device. And, yeah. you know, at first little... I was I was wondering, well, what if the wind is coming from behind you? Right. Yeah. And it's pushing you. How is <laughs> it measuring? Is... <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, what is so it exactly? I guess that, that's uh, you'll never have wind coming directly behind you, even if you even if you think you do. Um, but it's a little tube um, that sticks out in front of your bike, kind of like a, a pointy part of an airplane. And it's measuring both the, the, the speed of the wind coming into it and also the direction of the wind. So there are multiple holes that help help measure the, the direction of the wind. And then behind it is a little computer basically, and it's arrow shaped kind of, you know, they had to make it look cool. You should see the beta version, it was awful. And, uh, <laughs> it was just a box. And so anyways, um, and so within, within that little computer is, is a bunch of really cool data. It's a highly accurate GPS sensor, um, it's a, it's a whole weather station in there. It's measuring barometric pressure, air density, temperature, um, you name it, it's measuring it, um, because that's part of the equation. And so, and then it's gathering your power data, it's gathering your speed, it's, it's, and it's putting all together and it's figuring it out through math. In the end, it's just math. And so, yeah, it's just a little tube that sticks out in front of your bike. We, we mount it on your extensions or on your base bar. And away we go. And, and it's, you know, all it's there to do is account for the wind and all the atmospheric conditions. Everything else is your power and your speed. 
So it's not yeah. magic. It's not, you know, all a wind tunnel does, by the way, if people don't understand how a wind tunnel works, is you're, you're, you're on a platform in the wind tunnel. It's called a balance. And they, they don't blow air on you. They actually pull air towards you. That's how a wind tunnel works. They don't actually push it on you. They pull it towards you, goes through a bunch of little tubes. So it's perfectly straight when it hits you, which is not how air works, but that's how it works. And then what they're measuring is, is that air hits you. It's actually pushing uh, on the balance. So it's, it's actually deflecting the balance a little bit. And that's what they're measuring is the deflection of the balance. They're not measuring you at all. It's just, you know, how much are you moving the balance when the wind hits you? And you're, you're not actually riding your bike, you're pedaling, but you're not going anywhere, obviously. So this is completely different. And that's why, one, it was so difficult. And two, why it's so much better is because you're actually in the real world riding your bike. And we're just accounting for everything. So. Yeah, I, I didn't know that a long time ago. That yeah, that's why the fans are always behind the bike, right? Yeah, because yeah, they're pulling they air, be. right? Yeah, they're pulling <laughs> yeah, they air. And and I remember seeing the videos where they put smoke in there and they're watching yeah. the, the way it moves around around people and, and yeah. things like that. Yeah, it's fun to go down to the San Diego wind tunnel because that thing's been around since the 40s. And uh, it looks, it, you step in there, it's like going back in time. The, the control panels and everything are, are straight out of mission control in the 60s. It's, it is, it's incredible. You feel like you've stepped back, uh, you know, into your, uh, when your parents were kids. And, uh, at least for me, when my parents were kids, for some of you, most of you are my grandparents. But um, yeah, it's really incredible how, how that thing has been there forever. And it's just such a cool place. Now, Jim, a lot of times, you know, one of the favorite quotes is, if you're not testing, you're guessing. Yeah. And and we've been able to kind of crowdsource some um, some data when, when we're trying to kind of find, I guess, um, kind of, what am I looking for here? Generalities in, in what works best for most people, right? So yeah. we, we did some, some fun testing with helmets yeah. and trying to find what was generally a fast helmet. Um, and testing with that. And, and can you kind of talk a little bit about your, your thoughts on the, um, the factor of fiction and, and, and that side of the business and, and where you're trying to go with, with that on YouTube? So one of the things we're doing is creating a YouTube channel called Fast or Fiction. And we just want to test stuff. And, and we want to be sort of the independent voice for the industry and for the consumer because you hear all this stuff like, oh, this product is so much faster than that product. But you know, it's all marketing. It's it, it, none of it or virtually none of it is actually true. And so we want to be that independent source where we're going to test things. And, and some of it's fun stuff. Like we did the bottle down the front of your kit thing, right? Um, that was our late, our last video or one of our last videos. And so, um, and that created quite the ruck, quite the ruckus, but, um, but you know, helmets, stock went up on that alone. Oh my gosh, this is ridiculous. <laughs> um, so, you know, do arrow socks actually work? You know, calf sleeves, that's what we're testing now. Does clothing make a difference? Do arrow helmets make a difference? If so, how much? And so, you know, there's so many different things we can have. Some of it will be for fun and some of it will be to, to really inform the consumer on what's worth buying and what's not worth buying. But a lot of times the answer is, it depends, right? Because it's so individual sometimes to everybody. So what's the fastest helmet? It depends. What's the fastest clothing? It depends. It's, it, it's very individual. But like Tony said, you know, if we, if I take four, six, eight athletes and I test something and we can say, Hey, for six of these athletes, this particular product was faster. We could at least give you a fighting chance that you're not wasting your money. Right. And, and some of these things are, 
you know, you don't realize you don't have to spend a ton of money to make to, to really find some cool aero gains. You don't have to buy a new set of wheels. Um, you can do some little things that make big differences for you for a couple bucks, right? And and so those are the things that, that we want to tell people and show people and, and we'll have fun doing it. And, and who knows where this goes? I'm sure we'll get into product reviews at some point because inevitably when people test something, like the Rudy Project helmet we tested, a lot of people have seen that test. Um, the one thing, every every athlete, when they stopped, went, man, that, that helmet's so comfortable. It just feels so good. We weren't even asking. We didn't even care. We just wanted the arrow numbers. But every single athlete went, man, that thing feels good. And so I, I'm assuming at some point we'll get into product reviews too. Yeah, that was a great, that was one of the first videos I think I saw of yours was that video. That and, was the first uh, one we did. Yeah, yeah, that was awesome. It was we great. didn't do another one for almost three years. <laughs> and, and I remember because uh, right after that, you, it was, I felt like it was two years that you could not get that Rudy Project yeah. helmet. I yeah, mean, I was on out. their website daily waiting and they were just gone. Yeah, they that that you know it's so funny our our videos because we're you know we, we don't post regularly we're we're going to start posting regularly but we haven't we don't have much of a following so I think that that video initially got eight thousand views initially I think it's up to twelve or thirteen now but not a ton of views but the information went worldwide and so yeah they just sold out. And, and they were sold out for two years and, and they were very nice and they gave me a lot of credit for that. What, what a lot of people don't know is it's not, it wasn't just me. They, they did, you know, this was during COVID and, and a, a, an entire shipment of helmets was coming across the Pacific and the, um, the container they were in fell off the side of the ship. So they lost an entire container of aero helmets. So, so yeah, we, we do know, and we can talk about that. We, you know, we know we have an effect on sales, um, good and bad, and, and we have to be really careful about that. Um, but it wasn't all us. <laughs> I wasn't the only reason that thing was sold out. But, but yeah, they, they love me. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's hard Because if people don't reviews. know, that, that helmet tested very fast for pretty much everybody. Yeah. I mean, that is a hard thing. I'm, I claim to be an expert in nothing, right? But everybody wants me to review their product on YouTube videos. And yeah, yeah. I don't want to review products because half the products at least I get, I just want to send back to people because yeah. I don't want to give you bad press. I don't want to talk bad about you. I just, I don't yeah. want to use it. So I'll ship it back to you, right? So yeah. I hate to get Tony and I just mode. had that experience last week. So <laughs> it's like, oops, we're not posting that one. <laughs> and that's the struggle I'm going to have is, you know, not everything is arrow. And so do I post that it's not arrow? I mean, you guys kind of want to know, but at the same time, this particular product was a brand new manufacturer. It's the first product from this manufacturer. We tested one athlete and one athlete only. I didn't feel it was appropriate to have everybody judge that product on one test. And, and because I know, and I, I can tell you a story here in a second, because like Tony says, I'm full of them or full of it. But anyways, <laughs> um, I didn't want someone to judge that company on one test and ruin that guy's business because I know it will. I know I will put him out of business if I post what I know. And, you know, that sounds pompous, but I've, un I've had that unfortunate experience and, and where I, where I hurt businesses because of something I said on slow twitch or something like that, or really something I didn't say on slow twitch, but people inferred what I really meant. And so I'm very, I, ha I have to be careful, but at the same time, I've got to find a balance because some things 
I've got to tell you, hey, this is a waste of money. Sorry. So had that particular product that Tony and I tested last week, man, you guys are going to get nothing but questions on what that product was, um, which wasn't actually bad, right? Tony, it wasn't as bad. It just wasn't all that great. But um, if it had been from Trek or Specialized, I probably would have been more willing to say, hey, yeah, no, that's no good. Because, you know, yeah, I'm going to kill the sales of that product for them, but they've got, you know, a million other products they can sell. I don't want to kill a business right off the bat. And, and like I said, I don't mean to sound pompous, but I have unfortunately hurt businesses before. Um, not Again, not necessarily even what I say, just what I didn't say. And so my my wife, Lisa, always likes to say I have the Oprah effect. And um, I've just been very lucky to be a part of a lot of product development and, and, and kind of be at the forefront of all this stuff for many years. And I think that's the only reason why. And I've always been independent. And so people trust what I say. That's good and bad. Yeah, I think, I mean, from the aero testing side, one of the things, even aero helmets, I feel like people buy aero helmets, whatever it is, but they don't necessarily know how to ride with an aero helmet, (laughs) right? So the the fins way up in the air or, you know, whatever it is, right? (laughs) They're not, and that even if you get a great bike fit, I feel like there's some, which I think I got from you, which I had never gotten before is there's some of how to hold your body. Yeah on this bike fit, right? Yeah. How do you, know, what do you do with your shoulder blades? What do you do with your neck? How do you, yeah. you know, there's a lot of that stuff that nobody's educating on. No. And it's tough because again, a lot of it's individual and, and really, you know, what I would tell people is for aerodynamics, you're trying to make yourself as small as possible, right? That's what you're trying to do is, is provide as little as possible to the wind. Because the more the wind sees, the slower you're going to go. It's the way it is. So, but at some point, you, you know, you can, you can scrunch yourself up all you want. You're not going to stay there, right? So we need to put you in a position that naturally lowers your head, that naturally puts you in a position that you can remain comfortable and yet arrow. And, and a lot of people don't understand, unfortunately, what that is and how comfortable it can be. But also, yeah, you know, or maybe if you're riding into a big headwind, that's the time to, you know, lower that head for just a little while and get out of the wind and, uh, there's a lot of a lot of different things. You, you're always going to find your biggest gains from position. Your position is by far the number one way to get more arrow. And everything, you know, I used to when I when I would speak to to groups, I would I would have this slideshow presentation, and I would go, "Okay, everybody, get out get out your pens and papers. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna give out all the secrets. Here come the top ten things you can do for for better aerodynamics. Right? No one else knows this." And and I would, you know, click on my PowerPoint presentation and, and number one would be position. And I would talk about how important position is and nothing is better. And then I go, okay, here comes two through five. And I click on the thing and it would be position, 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 right? Just to drive home, that's where you're going to get your gains, right? Everything else is superfluous. And after that, it's, you know, it's helmets, it's clothing. Clothing makes such a massive difference. People don't realize. Then it's wheels, then it's hydration. And then it's your frame, by the way, right? Like your bike is one of the last things that's really going to help you because they're all aero now. They're all fast bikes. And so that, as long as it fits you properly, that's not your concern. It's everything before that is your concern. So um, anyways, position is by far the number one thing that you can do. Yeah, I think that's true. Oh, go ahead, Tony. No, yeah. I was I was joking with you when, when you guys were doing the bottle testing, right? And I'm like, uh-huh. oh, man. So... 
all these guys with like beer bellies. Do they have like a built-in water bottle? They're naturally <laughs> yeah. just more aero than uh, everyone else. If I that was true, I'd be incredibly fast. <laughs> um, no, you know, actually, we kind of figured out with Tony, and I've since figured out with a couple other people. Tony was first that the lower you put that bottle, the, the worse it gets. It doesn't mean it won't benefit you, but but you see these guys putting it around their stomach, and that's actually not the fastest spot. The fastest spot is high in your chest, and it'll it'll pull your kit down a little bit, but. If you're in a good position, see these are these are some caveats. Um, the wind won't see that 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 part of your kit because your chin or your hands are in the way, and so um, that that didn't make a difference at all. It's one of the things that shocked me. I, I really couldn't believe it worked. I, I I just couldn't believe how well it worked. And actually, what was what what really is a conundrum at this point for that for those of you who have kind of paid attention to this is the the athletes that were sitting up higher that were in a less aero position, it made a bigger difference for which logically makes sense. And so now the question is, and these are in, in aerodynamics, you can go down so many rabbit holes. It's really easy to do. And so now the question we're asking is, is it overall faster to be in a less aerodynamic position and put a bottle down your chest than a more aerodynamic position with the bottle down your chest? Because if it makes a bigger difference for you, maybe that's the faster overall position. And so we haven't gone down that rabbit hole yet, but uh, we have. One of the things I want to do is test it in a road bike position because it would just make sense that on a road bike, a bottle down your the front of your jersey is going to make a huge difference for you. So, yeah, And the other thing we talked about doing was um, testing the bottle down the jersey as we're sitting up on on the base bar. Yeah. Right. So yeah. like if it's if it's a climbing course, it's got, like I, I just did Hanu. I obviously had the bottle down down the jersey. There's climbing involved. So at points I am sitting up. We didn't test the, what was the effect of that, Not yet. but could, could it possibly have made me faster? Yeah. Potentially. Is the basics yeah. of that bottle, it's somewhat coning off your chest, so it's shaping the, like, you know, the air isn't hitting a, a wall, essentially? Yeah, I think Tony actually has given me the best analogy so far, to be honest with you, where he, he likens it to the skirts on a big rig you know, under the trailer of a big rig where it's not allowing that air to collapse in and hit that trailer, it's directing it around. So yeah, instead of that air hitting your chest, it's just directing it around you. And man, it made it, like, I did it today on a, on a client. Just He goes, I don't think it's gonna make a difference for me. And I just <laughs> laughed and sure enough, and just massive difference for him, you know? And and so it's just what happens. It's just, we were talking it's just about one it. of those things that works. One of those little tiny nuggets that you can find that cost you nothing, by the way. Right. But at this point, we were talking about this weekend, how long is that going to last until it's no longer allowed? I don't know. They outlawed it at Roth. The German Federation outlawed it. Uh, the question came up at Boulder, and Iron Man said it's not a problem. So I don't know. You know, uh, who knows? It's just one of those fun little things we did. And, um, you know, I'm not for it or against it. I, I wasn't trying to position myself that way. I just wanted to see if it would work. We'd seen Laidlow do it. We'd seen... Eden, you know, Gustav Eden do it. And we'd seen, um, you know, obviously uh, Magnus Ditlev do it. And so, hey, does this really work? Sure enough, man, it really works. So, but what's funny, you know, I, I think I mentioned this to Tony the other day. And we did that video. And, and one of the, the, the things we did with Tony was we combined a camelback bladder with a bottle. And it, we kind of did it as a joke more than anything. Like this, we wouldn't really do this. This would be ridiculous. But it worked really, really well for Tony. 
that's what everybody took away from that video. Like everybody's trying to throw camelback bladders down the front of their kids, you know, and you see me, you see videos online with people just, just struggling to get these huge camelback bladders down their kit. And you, I'm just shaking my head going, Oh my gosh, come on. Well, that was but, the first hey, thing. In, interesting note about legality. The national time trial championships were over the weekend. And uh, you know, uh, I'm going to just tell you that the top three were all my clients, but, um, but Lauren Stevens, who got second, you know, she lost by nine seconds to Chloe Deigert. Um, and, and just to be fair here, Chloe Deigert just went fast enough to win. She could have beat her by way more than nine seconds. But, um, but what was funny is Lauren put a bottle down the front of her kit. And, but she put it way too low. She put it down by her stomach. And, and so she posted online, she lost by nine seconds to Chloe and she posted online, Hey, does anybody have nine seconds for me? And I just went, yeah, bring the bottle up higher on your chest. And it would have been nine <laughs> seconds. But, um, but so far at the, at the U S national time trial championships where they're under the rules of the, the, the UCI, um, which is very stringent, they allowed it. And I was shocked. I, I couldn't believe that they allowed it, but they allowed it. Yeah, I was asking Tony how long until there's, you know, water bottles, one thing, but you're making like body armor almost, right? Yeah. Something that fits better to your chest. And, why not? And why, not right shape the kit that, why not shape the kit that way? Create a pocket for storage. Why not? Yeah. It would work. Yeah, when, I'd be really curious because like you said, all marketing, there's a lot of, Austin and I were talking about it because we've been working on some kits, like having custom kits made for mm -hmm. OC Endurance. And and now there's some kits coming out that are $1,200 or you yeah. know, triathlon yeah. kits and talking about all the technology on the material. And, and you've got to wonder, is it, I mean, how much is really, how much is it really benefiting? It's, it's tough to know exactly. It depends. <laughs> so, um, look, there's not a lot of secrets out there anymore. There, there isn't. Um, and, and, you know, I can go into a, a long-winded uh, explanation of how aerodynamics works around the body and, and why the body is just a horrible aerodynamic, uh, you know, collection of shapes. But um, $1,200, yeah, uh, you know, if, if you're uber elite, and so really what we're doing at that point for those things is so, you know, see, we go down rabbit holes real fast. Air flows differently at different speeds, right? So if you're going through the air at 15 miles an hour, it's very different than if you're going through air at 28 miles an hour. So a piece of clothing for that athlete at 28 miles an hour might be a really poor piece of clothing for the person at 15 miles an hour because the air just flows so differently. And so now with a lot of these newer kits, we're building and cutting those suits to the speed they actually race, right? Like that, they're actually designed around that speed. So for the average middle of the pack age grouper, don't go out and buy a $1,200 kit. You're wasting your money. It, and, and there's plenty of really fast kits out there. And, and I have a whole pet peeve about uh, coaches buying really cheap kits for their and expecting their clients to wear them. And they're killing their performance. People don't understand how important clothing is, what a massive difference it makes. And so... Anyway, sorry. Um, so yeah, you know, again, that's what we want to do with faster fiction is go, look, it's not worth it. Don't, don't spend $1,200, you know, get a, you know, this year we're finding Zoot made a really fast kit this year. And I have never known Zoot to be really all about speed. It's more about fashion. Well, they made a fast kit this year and it's, it's really, really good. Hey, good for them. And, 
And so, you know, you know what's a fast suit still to this day? And I actually don't think they're making it anymore because they're more into sunglasses is Roka. Roka's kit is really fast. Um, but I think they're dumping the whole thing because they're just focusing on on uh, on sunglasses. So, you know, but clothing is huge. Uh, I, 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 we could do a whole podcast just on clothing alone. Yeah, I would imagine seam, seam placement would yeah. have a lot to do with it. So um, if you've ever heard the term skin is slow, skin is slow is kind of a fun term that 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 came up at Aerosports in 2012 when we were introducing the, the velodrome testing system to the world. Um, and, and all the best aerodynamicists, a lot of the world tour teams, national federations all came to L.A., for the super secret introduction of this velodrome uh, aero testing system, because it was it was very secretive, and so we were displaying the numbers all in real time on a big screen, and you saw a bunch of people gathered around the big screen, just fascinated by the numbers. I was one of them, and we all just had our mouths open and our eyes big. But in the background, you saw this one guy that just looked bored as anything. He was just leaning on the rail, and he was just bored as anything, and. And one of our test riders was a triathlete, and we had put him in a, a sleeveless suit, and then we put him in a in a time trial suit. Sleeve tri suits didn't exist at that point, and we were just amazed at the difference it made. How much faster he was with sleeved a sleeve suit than sleeveless. And his name was Paul Harder from Trek. And I looked back at Paul, and I said, "Wow, Paul, that is just incredible, isn't it?" And he goes, "And Paul's just a very dry guy," and he just goes, "Yeah." Skin is slow. <laughs> so that's where skin is slow was born. Skin is a really bad aerodynamic surface. I don't know. And when you, you cover Austin. it correctly, you'll go faster. But so our thing is skin is slow, but wrinkles are worse. Right? So oh, that's, that's, yes. that's it. So, but that's how that was born back in 2012. Because I always give Austin a hard time because he's a sleeveless guy, right? Like yeah, Lionel's a yourself. sleeveless guy, right? And uh, But yourself. he says, what do you always say, Austin? Biceps win races, baby. <laughs> <laughs> It'll kill so, you. Like it's killing you. You'd, so, you'd be shocked at what the difference, what difference that is. Just probably, we always talk in wattage and we shouldn't be talking in wattage when we talk about drag, drag savings because, uh, you know, wattage is all dependent on how many watts you're putting out. So uh, the same exact drag savings for someone who puts out 150 watts versus 250 watts is totally different. If it's three, you know, let's say it's, uh, well, let me make my math easy. Let's say it's 10%, right? So that, that 150 watt riders save 15 watts, right? But that 250 watt riders save 25 watts. It's the same savings percentage wise, right? So it's all dependent on how many watts you're putting out to begin with. So we should stop talking in watts, but but either way, it's it's massive. Clothing is it's it's really probably other than position, it's the single biggest gain you're going to find these days because mm -hmm. all the helmets are fast, and now it's about, now it's about clothing, and it's just getting better and better. Even when you're all oiled up like Austin is. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, it's so funny with Holly, you know, Tony and I, you know, Tony helped me with Holly Lawrence last week and we spent two days with her aero testing and she was wonderful and we found some amazing gains for her, but she, you know, Holly is famous for wearing her bathing suit. Yeah. And, she wants it uh, to come back, right? You know, she really does. And when we were testing it, you know, I joked with Tony, like every man in the world wants this bathing suit to be faster than her sleep <laughs> kit, right? <laughs> so, um, but it, it just is not, it's not even close. But Holly came up with the idea of like, hey, why don't why don't we put like 
little strips on your shoulders to make them faster. And that goes to how air flows, by the way. Again, we can get into that discussion if you want. But but it was actually kind of a, a really brilliant idea. Like, hey, let's let's uh, it's called tripping the boundary layer. Let's trip the boundary layer with strips on your shoulders and then everybody can go back to sleeveless again. And I don't know if it could ever happen, but th that was one of the jokes that came up. So we're going to have tassels? Suit. Like tassels? Yeah, no, no tassels. <laughs> tassels would create too much drag. So. I, I mean, think of it like when um, Kachogi was doing the Breaking 2 project, right? They had the arm sleeves and the calf sleeves with like the dimpled pattern on yep. it, right? Mm -hmm. To help because at the speeds he's running airflow makes a difference right that's yeah. the whole idea of of him running in the middle of that pack so so he's not taking up uh, or using up the energy I, uh, and letting them break the wind it's, it's up to you guys if you want me to go into this it's not too deep of a dive but i can explain how air flows around the body and why dimples or stripes or whatever no, i think that'd better. be great okay so other than a flat plate a cylinder is the worst shape you can present to the wind it's awful and so think of a golf ball. A golf ball without dimples will not go very far at all because what happens is as the air hits that golf ball, at the widest point of that ball, the air actually separates from the ball. And as it separates, it collapses behind the ball and starts tumbling. It creates a low pressure system behind the ball. That's called pressure drag. And it's literally pulling back on the ball. And so how can you fix that? Well, they put dimples on a golf ball. And what they're doing is those dimples are actually roughing up the air. They're actually creating more friction, more what we call friction drag. And you would think that's a bad thing. But by roughing up the air or what's called tripping the boundary layer, the boundary layer are the air molecules that you're affecting as you travel through air, right? So even when you're walking, you're going, you're, you, you've got a boundary layer. Air is flowing over you, right? So those dimples are roughing up that air. And in so doing, they're actually delaying the separation of the air from that ball. And therefore, instead of a big giant pressure area behind that ball, that ball now has a little tiny pressure area behind it. And it will go farther because friction drag is not as bad as pressure drag, right? So, so you're choosing between the lesser of two evils. So why do you wear an arrow helmet? If you just have your head or a round arrow helmet, that air is going to separate right at the widest part of your helmet and it's going to collapse behind you and it's going to cause all kinds of pressure drag. Same with your arms, same with your legs, same with the bike. Why don't we use round shapes anymore? So there's two things you can do. You can create an arrow shape so the air just stays attached and doesn't break away at all. That's what our frames are trying to do. That's what our wheels are trying to do is create an arrow shape that the, the, the air never separates from. It'll, it'll separate later. Well, we can't do that with our bodies. So our next best thing is we, we rough up the air. We create more friction drag to reduce the pressure drag behind us. And that's, that's really all we're doing. And that's why you see the stripes on the kits or the dimples or, or whatever. That's what it's doing. And it works really well. Actually, yesterday, really fascinating. I was, I was testing on the velodrome for the first time in a long time because I was testing a track athlete. And Rule 28 has a time trial skin suit that you put an undershirt under and the undershirt is actually ribbed. So the, the, the governing body of cycling has ruled that the, the ribbing on your, on your kit can be no more than one millimeter high. And so rule 28 got around that by creating an undershirt with, with like three to four millimeter high ribbing. And so we tested the kit without the ribbing and then he put the undershirt on and it ended up roughing up the kit, right? And it was for him, 12 watts faster at 250 watts. 
Like it was ridiculous just putting this undershirt on because it actually it, it created more friction drag and lowered the pressure drag behind them just by putting a, a ribbed undershirt on. It was incredible. So, so it works. Jim, Jim, along those same lines, can we talk about that zoot suit it, and uh, getting a proper fitting suit? And if it suits yeah. too tight, it's basically going to stretch that material. You want to yes. get into that? So it's kind of a balance, right? So um, skin is slow. But wrinkles are worse, so you don't want a bunch of wrinkles, right? You don't you don't want um, you don't want all around your shoulder. You don't want loose. You don't want that clothing loose around your neck. Um, you don't want uh, sorry. You don't want it uh, wrinkling around your shoulders. You don't want any of that. Um, but at the same time, like Tony said, that fabric is ribbed. So if you if it's too tight, you're going to flatten out the ribbing on it, and it's it's aerodynamically just not going to work as well. And so. You've got to find a perfect, you know, that kit that fits you really, really well. And once you do that, then the air is going to flow over you really well. So, you know, um, you know, let's all keep this to ourselves, listeners. But for the last two Olympics, the U.S. Olympic team, uh, I'm going to get in trouble for this just so you know, but I'm kind of retired, so they can't put me in too much trouble. <laughs> um, the U.S. Olympic team has not worn the kit of their sponsor. In Brazil, it was ASOS. In Tokyo, it was Corey. Who, who were the official sponsors and who the team was supposed to be, whose kits the team was supposed to be wearing. They weren't wearing them. Instead, they were wearing a, a very inexpensive kit made by a company called Velotech out of Italy. And this, this kit, which is usually like 100, 110 bucks, like it's nothing, but it's crazy fast. And no one could figure out why their suit is faster than everybody else's because you just look at it and go, okay, it looks just the same as everybody else's. Why is it fast? And what I surmised, and I, and, and I might not be right about this, but because it's cheap and because they're using cheaper materials, it doesn't stretch as much. And so when you put it on, the ribbing doesn't get stretched out and flattened so much. And so it just works better. And so we've just rebranded those kits for the last two Olympics because those were the fastest kits. And, and that's the only thing I can think of is because they're cheap. They don't actually stretch out the way they're supposed to, and it just makes them more arrow because they're more lumpy, basically. Yeah, they in hold their the shape. Right ways. <laughs> but to back to Tony's question, you have to have a, a proper fitting kit. Most of the time, we see people wearing kits that are too big, and they're, and they're flopping around, you know, by their necks and shoulders, and and right behind their neck, and that's just killing you aerodynamically. People don't realize. And when you get into a real good kit, you can actually feel it. You don't even need me to tell you it's more arrow. You'll go ride it and go, oh, yeah, this is clearly more arrow. Like um, a couple months ago, I, a woman was in a – she was in a sleeved kit, but it was too big for her. And so – and she was a great arrow tester for me, actually. She was just a middle-of-the-pack athlete. And and she's putting out 183 watts, right? So 183 watts, and she was going a certain speed. I forget what it was. And then we put her in a good kit, a good fitting kit. And for the exact same to the watt wattage, 183, it was actually 183.4 watts to be accurate. She was going a kilometer an hour faster for just changing her kit. That's all she did. And she was going a kilometer an hour faster just because her clothing fit her better. And that, when you add that up, that is saving you massive amount of times. Or that's what you're giving up to your competitors who are wearing good suits. And she's middle of the pack. And so it... And we can talk about how that matters more for middle of the pack athletes than it does for elite athletes. And so, um, 
you know, arrow matters for everybody and people don't realize that how important it is. But yeah, your clothing is huge and how it fits you is massive. Yeah, there was a comment this weekend. I think it was on the Coeur broadcast. I could be wrong, but somebody had a bike bottle in the pocket of their suit. In the and back. the comment actually was, you know, the, the, someone made a comment about how they've got the bike bottle in the back of their suit, you know, but, and, and then I don't know if it, who with that doing that broadcast, if it was Liedo or who it was, but they said that it can actually be faster. Yeah. And I, I, oh, you know, no. I just thought it was interesting, you know, cause again, there's something back there that's changing the shape and, uh, you know, whether that's true or not. Yeah. So it's probably wrong. Um, but that's okay. Cause th- look, this knowledge is not, it's not, you know, not everybody has this knowledge. It's not like we're, we've been good at getting this out. This is part of why we want to do this YouTube channel. But, you know, one of my biggest um, guilt I have is when we first started aero testing, we tested uh, Mickey Weiss, the pro triathlete Mickey Weiss, who's kind of infamous, um, with a bottle behind his saddle. And it was faster for him. But for most people, the way you sit on your saddle and the way those bottles are set up, it's way slower. You're just putting two parachutes behind you. And, and, but because it tested faster for him and everything was new and I said it, oh my gosh, it just went viral. And everybody started putting one bottle behind the back of their seat. That's my fault. But for most people, <laughs> it's awful. It's terrible back there. And so, because you're just putting another cylinder in the wind, because if you think about it, unless that bottle is really close to you, the air has gone around you collapse behind you and now it's going to hit another cylinder right it's not going around it it's going to hit a second cylinder and again cylinder is is one of the worst shapes you can present to the wind and so yeah you're just slowing yourself so down. is it better so, off being on the frame you know the typical bike area okay well you want to go down a rabbit hole <laughs> so having a round bottle on your on a and an aerodynamically designed frame is always going to be worse however you have to think about how you use it. So if you have bottles behind you, and let's just say for the, for the sake of argument that the bottles behind you are faster, how often are you reaching behind you to grab those bottles and coming out of your arrow position to do it? And then reaching back there to put it back after you're done drinking out of it. You're losing far more time doing that than if you could kind of halfway stay in your arrow position and just reach down on your down tube and grab a bottle and drink right? Because you're not breaking your arrow position nearly as much. The one thing people don't understand, and again, very few people understand this. So, you know, you guys are getting uh, information a lot of people don't have is when you break your arrow position, when you go back into arrow, you're not arrow yet. It takes about a minute for that air to settle around you. So not only did you lose your aerodynamics for that moment that you were sitting up, there's a whole nother minute of crap aerodynamics that you just created. And so the question then becomes, and this is something we'll test at some point, the question becomes, overall, what's faster? Is it overall faster to have that bottle in your down tube just because when you do break arrow, it's not as bad? And so maybe overall, that's the faster setup. And that's something we need to test and figure out. And then we will be doing that. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, no, it is because I I have the double mount uh, on the canyon, right? That's in the back, but I use them only to refill Mm -hmm. the profile design. We put the the Aria, I think it's called. Yeah, Uh, one of the greatest buys in all of cycling. Yeah. Yeah, So I put, you know, other than the fact that I hate that it splashes. Yeah. uh, They created a cooler. uh, Have you seen the Quintana Roo lid? 
that actually yeah, opens. Yeah. That uh, will be coming out from Profile Design okay. really probably by fall. All right, because that then I'll get that because I actually made a rubber top for mine that I could put because I hate how mess it is. But I only yeah. use my back bottles to refill that, yeah. right? So I don't get up and down for that. But I probably so still it's not get a up problem and down too as much. long as those two bottles aren't killing you aerodynamically. Right. That's what you. So if they're generally speaking, you can say if they're sitting straight up, you're you've just got two parachutes back there, and it's killing you. Um, if you angle them, it's a little better and it just depends how much you angle them. So, but then you, 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 uh, you're, uh, you're concerned with launching those bottles off the back anyways. So there, it's a whole balance you got to find. So I would be curious to test that Joe Skipper Chronos, the double Chronos bottle off the we back. Did. Oh, and back. No, off the back. Oh, oh I didn't front see it ones. off the back. He, okay. he used that for the, uh, the breaking, uh, what the breaking seven project. Oh yeah. Whatever. So, yeah, so he had them stacked and basically just, again, basically creating a fairing. Yeah. That would be an interesting thing to test, but I don't, I don't know if there's any um, commercial way to, to purchase that mount and, and, and have no, that's right where you get, that's where you get someone to design something, 3D print it, and you test it. And that's what we yeah. did with his over-the-arm mounts. You know, we tested those because we, we had a client, Brendan, who, who created the, the mount for it. Exactly. I mean, it was exactly like like uh like skippers and uh and it was faster but it wasn't ridiculously fast or anything yeah it was three percent three percent tony knows nothing to shake your head at three percent faster was was pretty impressive i'll take three percent all day long yeah anybody should take three percent that's a lot <laughs> well, the other thing too is uh canyon canyon i don't know if it's canyon that, that's creating or selling it but they have that like arrow rear fairing that's coming off the rear seat now t- to to hold the bottle almost in a horizontal position behind the riders so mm-hmm. Um, Jan was the first one I think I saw ride with it. And then this past weekend, weekend at Roth, I saw Laidlow had it as well. So now I think they're probably just distributing to their, to their riders. Yeah. that's But the other thing too, is you had Jan comment, uh, commentating for Roth and he was losing his shit over all the aerodynamics that these pros have in, in the time they put in their bike and they were required to, um, have their bibs during yeah. the bike portion. And yeah. so all their bibs are flapping in the wind. And he's like, I can't even look at this. It's driving yes. me crazy. It's ridiculous. Uh, and Laidlow was the only one who had like a little pouch for it. Yeah. And, uh, and actually had it against his, like, like the TTers do. Yeah. So worst yeah, part was, of Oceanside. Yeah. Yeah. It's awful. Wear that bit. Aerodynamically, it's awful. Yeah. Well, I have a question because it comes up, I feel like in, in Discord and it comes up a lot in um, Wills. You know, wheels, 28s yeah. first, right? And rolling resistance first, oh, the man. width of the wheels. And I mean, is that another, it depends or is it it's, 28? Yeah. You know, Cause 28s are way more comfortable for me, right? Sure. As far as bounce and absorbing. And so I'll be honest, I'm not the expert on, on this stuff. I haven't kept up with it as much as I should because uh, I'm getting myself in trouble. Um, I don't believe that the testing being done is proper. And and this came up last year when Zip revealed how they tested their wheels and and look, you're never going to make everybody happy, but it was there was clearly some fault in the way those wheels are being tested and then it made everybody take a step back and go, "Wait a minute. Is the way we're testing all this rolling resistance um, and air pressure is it real or are we just fooling ourselves here?" And to be honest with you, I don't think that has been answered yet. I really don't. Like so you have these, you know, you you've got these websites that, that put out these numbers, but I, I think at this point we should be questioning those and, and not taking them at face value. Um, I suspect, 
I could be wrong that we will go, we won't go back to thinner tires, I don't think, because the wheels are now being built around those wider tires, right? Right. But I don't think the low tire pressures that people are putting out now are going to stick around. I think we're going to go back to 100 pounds of tire pressure and that's going to be faster. And this whole thing where it's like, well, you know, higher pressure, you bump along the ground. And that's not true. That's just not true. And so um, I I think we're going to figure that out. We can actually figure that out with our system, to be honest with you. You just have to be really meticulous to do it. Um, And it's, it's, it's very difficult to do. But our system, so our system in the end, it's just measuring, hey, there's a difference here. Something is making you faster, right? We, we look at it uh, at, you know, for aerodynamics, right? So we're changing your position or clothing or helmets. But I could actually put a chain with less friction on there, and it's going to actually measure more arrow. It's not more arrow. It's just you're using less wattage to go the speed you're going because that chain has less friction, and it's going to come up as aerodynamics. Does that make sense? So we can actually do this with tire pressure. It's just, and I, and I have the equipment to do it. It's just, it's extremely meticulous work and you have to repeat these numbers over and over again. You're talking, you know, it probably a couple weeks worth of testing just to figure out one person's proper tire pressure. It's, it's really hard to do. And that's why, you know, you look at these tests and, you know, me sitting on a bike at 240 pounds is a whole lot different than my wife sitting on a bike at 118 pounds, right? So, so you know, what's the appropriate tire pressure for her versus me? It, it, again, it depends, right? And so it can be very athlete dependent. So I, the, what I've seen, I don't want to tear these guys up too much, but from what I've seen, I feel like a lot of it is junk science and it's just, it, it's great for that person who's doing the testing. The, the person I test, uh, I trust the most in this is a guy named Tom Anholt, uh, Anholt. And I don't know how much testing he's doing anymore. He was kind of the first person to do it. Um, I would trust him more than anybody because the guy's just a brilliant engineer. Um, but beyond that, yeah, I'm not super trusting on any of that stuff. Uh, I yeah. just don't think they're doing it right. Tom, Tom's the one that was doing all the rolling resistance testing, yeah. right? And, and with he the had drums. Created, yeah, he, yeah. 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 And I, I think early on in the industry, at least, we had the rule of 105, right? The 105%, yeah. the um, difference between the widest portion of your, the, the external width of, of the, the rim versus the external width of an inflated tire, right? Because yes. just because a, a tire says 25 or 28, when you inflate it, it's going to, inflate differently based on the casing. Yeah. And, and so that's, that's a whole other thing. You can't just go by that number either. So it really, it's, it's what, what tire works best with what wheel manufacturer. And yeah. it's, it's different for each. That's why there's so many, it depends, which I think is a common theme in, in it, this podcast. It's so hard. And, and I will, you know, I, I, we don't want to be the dead horse, but uh, several years ago, I was hired to do a bunch of wheel and tire testing for several, um, nations and and world tour teams they paid a lot of money and we came away with we have no idea right like it was amazing (laughs) how you would test one wheel with one tire and you test that same wheel with another tire and you would just kill the aerodynamics on that that wheel like so you if you test if you put the wrong tire on your wheel you're 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 likely killing the aerodynamics of you spent four thousand dollars 
for, you know, a really cool looking wheel, but it's not arrow for you because you got the wrong tire on it. And so at this point, I think that the best we can do is trust the manufacturers. Um, and then the other thing I tell people is the one wheel that came out of there that just didn't care what tire you put on it. This wheel never tested fastest, but it was always second or third. And it was head, H-E-D, head wheels. Didn't care what tire you put on them. They were fast no matter what. And uh, we won't talk about what wheel was last in every test, Tony. But, um, <laughs> but you know, the fastest wheel ended up being, at the time, the Envy 7.8. It's still one of the fastest wheels in the world. I hate that company. As long as you have a 25 millimeter <laughs> tire on it. But Sorry. if you don't have a 25 millimeter tire uh, on that wheel, it's a piece of crap. Yeah. And so, you know, it's it, it's really difficult for the consumer, I think. I think it's very confusing right now. I think it's unfair, some of the numbers that are being thrown around. Because Tony knows this. We can do an aero test, right? So our aero tests are usually three out and back runs of one kilometer. So you go out a kilometer, back a kilometer, out a kilometer, back, and out and back one more time. So six runs, really, um, three out and backs. And we get three different drag numbers from each out and back. But no two are, are, are rarely the same. Your drag number is not a constant. It's constantly changing, right? And so you'll, you're going to get three numbers that are all within a margin of error, sometimes not, but they're all different. So what manufacturers do is they go, okay, what's the lowest drag number out of those? Okay, that's our drag number. And then what's the highest drag number of our competitor? Okay, that's their drag number. And that's what they give you. Right. And so that's, you know, that's that's marketing. Right. Welcome to marketing. And and uh, it's just what happens. And and so for the consumer, it's just super confusing, you know, and, and, and the one thing I could tell people for wheels and frames, there's just not big differences anymore. Not like what we used to see. Uh, there really aren't. Uh, they're all fast. So when I talk about an arrow wheel being the slowest arrow wheel, it's still a fast wheel. Right? It's still it's not that it's slow. It's just not the the fastest. But the the differences we're talking about now are, are so tiny. Again, go back to position, go back to helmets and clothing. You're going to find much bigger differences there. As long as you have a good set of arrow wheels, you'll find much bigger differences elsewhere. You know, testing a bunch of wheels. I, to be honest with you, I won't even do it at this point. It, it's just a waste of my time to test different wheels. They're all fast. Um, so unless someone's going to pay me a ton of money to do it, I'm not doing it. It's yeah. just, it's, it's not worth it. They're all I fast. was really curious about that head wheel that came out last year. Like you yeah, know, at Kona, right. You, that you saw it nonstop then. And I feel like I've seen nothing on it since. And well, they don't sell many of them. I mean, that, that, that wheel is really produced for Kona, right? Because right. you're not allowed to, for, for people who don't know, you're, you're not allowed to use a disc wheel in Kona because of the, the really heavy crosswinds. Um, so they, so head basically built a disc wheel with a, with a hole in the middle of it, just a little tiny hole just to get around the rules. And it is a fast wheel. I mean, disc wheels are fast, right? I mean, on the track, you see, you see the, you know, the, the elite riders have double discs. They have a disc in front and disc in back. They don't have to worry about crosswinds so they can put a disc wheel up front. It's because they are by far the fastest wheel. So yeah, put a disc wheel on the back of your bike, but, um, but when you have big crosswinds, you're going to get you're going that thing's going to turn around. into a sail, and that could be good or bad for you. But you're going to get blown around. So, um, so for Kona, they've they've outlawed the disc wheel. I I actually think it's kind of silly, but um, so head, yeah, got around that. The the that wheel is great. It's head head wheels are fantastic. It's a great company, and they're great wheels, and they're usually not as expensive as everybody else. So, if you're not going to test, 
Those are probably your best bet, to be honest with you. The fastest wheels right now are Princeton Tech, because I know that question is going to come up. But Princeton <laughs> Tech has the fastest wheels in the world right now. Hmm. Well, you mentioned something, and Austin – or not Austin um, – Tony mentioned it to me this weekend as well. So I think um, elaborating on that a little bit for people that are looking at aero testing, um, you said six runs essentially. Yeah. And is part of that, um, and I know the answer because Tony talked about it a little bit, is part of that is you can get the answers in six or yeah. that you start to lose power because you start to get tired? You know, what all plays into that? So one, it's both. So we can we can get the answer in that many. We. To be honest with you, for someone like Tony, who's, who's aero tested a lot, I need one run from Tony, but the system won't allow that. It won't calculate it with only one run. But really, for Tony, I could do one run, and I'd be pretty confident of that number. But we do three. Just in case we have an anomaly, we can throw that out, and then we average the other two. But normally, we average all three together because the, the margin of error is, is, is fine. Um, but those are done at race pace. So basically every test is six race pace intervals, you know, because it's an out and back. So you you go out a kilometer, you have to you have to slow down and stop, turn around, get back up to speed into your position and do the next kilometer, turn around. And so you get tired really, really fast. And fatigue is an aero test killer. When you start getting tired, you're tired, your drag goes up real high. So We'll only test a certain amount per day. The moment you get fatigued, we're done testing. So, uh, you know, you don't get that many runs in um, before you're done. So normally nowadays when someone signs up for aero testing or, or an aero fit, I'll try to break it up into a couple days for them. So we can, we can get everything in that we need to and be confident of those numbers. And so, um, yeah, that's important because sometimes we want to repeat the test just to make sure they're correct. I did that today. There was a number that was so good. You know, sometimes you get numbers that are so good or so bad, you just can't believe them. And so you've got to repeat. Can can we repeat that number? This is I I, I harp on this all the time because you go into a wind tunnel. And I'm, I'm guilty of this, by the way. And wind tunnels are really, really expensive. You know, you're talking thousand dollars an hour. And so you test as many things as you can as fast as you can. But if you test them twice you'll find that those numbers will come out completely different. And that's where you get, okay, now what do we do? Because now we have two completely different numbers. Which one is right? Well, the only way to know is to test again and then test again. And so if you can't repeat your numbers, they're not valid. And it's one of the things I love about the way we test is you're forced to repeat your numbers six times over the course of that run. And even then, sometimes we're going to repeat that test. But at least we're confident knowing that you can get out of your arrow position and back into it and within a, a relatively decent margin of error, you can repeat that number. Because if you can't, then something's wrong. I hope that so, makes sense. Yeah. So when you're doing that, that is one. So you're looking at, okay, race pace, specifically yeah. a power number, I assume. Yeah. So if you know your race power, let's say your race power is 220 watts, that's what we want to test at because that's going to give you your race speed. And remember, air travels differently over you depending on what speed you're going. So we, we would like to, to get you at race pace. So we are getting good numbers for what you're going to see on race day. And most power meters that folks have on their bikes will work with your system or how does that work? Yes, but we do not accept uh, single-sided power meters. They're just not accurate enough. If you want to see a system that will identify what power meters are not accurate, our system will do any, the Alpha Mana system was the same way. We yeah, you know, because most people don't realize your power numbers when they're by the time they're presented to you are highly smoothed over. 
you're not seeing your power numbers in real time. You're seeing a smoothed out version of your power numbers. When power meters first came out in the 90s, it was impossible to maintain a specific power because there was no smoothing at all. Your power was all over the place because that's really how it works. But most people are presented a very smooth power, right? So our system can very quickly identify whether or not your power meter, A, is accurate and B, is, uh, is, uh, is, is consistent. Yeah. And so that is the Achilles of the system, to be honest with you, is if you don't have a good power meter, we're not going to get good numbers. And so there are certain power meters, you know, I'm, I don't want to hurt anybody here. There are certain power meters I prefer over others um, and certain one and single sided. It's just not worth it. It, it, you know, and, and, and it makes you realize you should have saved some money and spent the extra on a dual sided power meter. It just save up a couple more bucks and, and buy the dual sided because it's, it's just way more accurate. So because all the single sided is doing is taking a number and doubling it. And that is in no way accurate. Not at all. Yeah. We were actually just talking about that this weekend. Yeah. It's someone, important. Yeah. I, Tony I was specifically asking that. someone whether they had dual or single. Yeah, if you know, if you're going to train with power, do it right. You know, spend a couple extra bucks. You know. Yeah. Now, is there? Well, uh, well go ahead. I was going to say it, a dual side power meter also helps when somebody's either coming back from injury or um, it thinks thinks that an injury is coming on. You can really start to to see your left right balance and and better gauge that and and see effort. So, I mean, for example, is you know two weeks ago when I had that niggle in my knee. I, I could immediately see my left side was down at 48%. Typically I'm, I'm 50, 50. Um, and that lasted about three days. And then once I, it started to feel like it went away and, and sure enough, I looked at, at the power balance and it was back to 50, 50. So it is really good at identifying those things also. Yep. Now, when we say dual is, is pretty much the only that I know of pedal power meters that are going to be, they're either single or, or dual. Cause I used to have a power tap right in the hub. And I okay. think Tony and I both have the same, power meter now right so, in, in your crank is that where yours is Tony? so uh, yeah. all quark power meter well not all because they just came out with a new one quark power meters are dual-sided they're true dual-sided power meters um most of the time like you know the, the first company that came out with a single-sided power meter at least one that that became popular was stages um and then i think four eyes came out with one um and and so single-sided look if you just want to play around with a number have at it. But if you're going to train with power, you need dual sided. So um, most power meters, um, pedal power meters will either come one sided or two sided. Um, so yeah, by the dual sided, it, it just makes more sense. But you just mentioned it. The If I could test with one power meter for the rest of my days, it would be power tap, the hub. That is the greatest power meter ever made uh, because one, it was highly accurate. And two, it's at the end of the train or end of, literally the end of the chain, right? It's, it, it's not affected by your drivetrain because your drivetrain, there, there is a, there's an efficiency loss there. We, we assume it at 2%. That's long been held that your, your drivetrain efficiency is about 98%. That's why we still have chains because they're so darn efficient. But the power tap even takes that out of the equation. We don't have to guess. It doesn't care how much resistance you're losing at the, in your drivetrain. And so the power tap was always the most accurate power meter out there. Um, and, and 
I hope it comes back. Uh, you know, SRAM bought PowerTap, Quark specifically bought PowerTap, and I am begging them to bring it back. It is amazing. Yeah, I was uh, curious why it went away. I don't know. I, you know, I don't know. I, I thought they bought them for their pedals, but we haven't seen anything with that. Um, I, I think we all suspected that we'd be seeing zip wheels come with power meter hubs. Um, everybody suspected that, but that hasn't seemed to happen. So, I, you know, I honestly don't know. Um, I wish I had the answer for you there, but if I, even to this day, if I could have a, a rim brake and disc brake wheel that I would put on everybody's bike with a power tap hub, I'd do it. I wouldn't even use your power meter. I would just use a power tap because I know it's accurate. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's what I had on my other bike. And then oh, when I great. went to the canyon, now I've got I was one of the first people to ever have a power tap back in the 90s. <laughs> so <laughs> at the old school power tap. It was actually not power tap back then. It was called tune. Yeah, my and, assumption uh, was thinking, you know, not knowing, was that it went away because it was too far away from where the power was being generated. No. And that they were moving it more towards the pedal, more towards the crank, getting it away from the you know, because it was losing accuracy or wasn't as accurate, which is interesting. No, I, there's a part of me that thinks it went away because it was just too cheap. Because <laughs> really, they, they had gotten to the point where you could, you could get the most accurate power meter for 200 bucks, right? Like to, for the cost of a, just a regular hub. Yeah. And so I, I kind of wonder if they just wanted to get it off the market. I mean, it and, is a bummer where if you have a, uh, a disc, and it's in there, or you yeah. have 808s yeah. and you have 404s and you're right. I mean, yeah. you, who's going to have seven power meters or whatever, yeah. right? Yeah. That's exactly where I was going. I was like, yep. you know, if you have multiple wheel sets, that works out great for you. Um, but yeah, if, if you race on a disc, now you've just lost your power meter. You'd need to have an, an, an alternative to that. Exactly but also, right. they're heavy, right? Nadia's got a power tap hub on her yeah. wheel and it's heavy. heavy. Yeah, but weight is nothing. That's, you know. It, yes. In the, grand scheme of <laughs> Wait, things, yes. in the big scheme of things, weight yes. is not an issue. Arrow. It's more about arrow. Uh, well, <laughs> unless you're going, unless you're going uphill. Even then, you do. Even then, it doesn't make that big of a difference. Yeah, you know, it, amazingly not, enough, it really doesn't. You can do the math on it. There used to be a website where you could do the math. I don't know if it's still out mm -hmm. there. That's my excuse for not being fast uphill. Oh man, I'm no, yeah, forty pounds heavier than everyone else. Look, man, there's. It used to be called like analytic cycling or analyticalcycling.com, where you could put in. Let's say you're going up GMR and you're going to go eight miles at an average of 5.5%. And this is how much power you're going to put out. And this is how much you weigh. And this is how much your bike weighs. They would even allow you to kind of change the quality of the asphalt. And it was shockingly accurate mm -hmm. in telling you how long it was going to take you to get up that hill. And then I would tell people, okay, now just take 10 pounds off, five pounds off you, five pounds off your bike, whatever, however you do it, and recalculate. And you go, crap. That's all I saved. That's all I got out of losing 10 pounds, 20 pounds, nothing. I used to, it used to be in my point to people where it's like, look, you know, you can, you can buy a, a Dura-Ace Equip bike for $15,000 or you can buy an old Tegra bike for half the price. What are you getting for double the price? Don't tell me, wait, because it's not making any difference at all, man. It's, it's just, it's just not helping you. And so, so yeah, weight is not that big of a deal. It's, it, it's all about aero. People ask me all the time. I'm lucky enough to work with a lot of world tour riders, even still today. And people ask me all the time, you know, if, if, if cyclists are cleaner today than they were back in the years of Lance Armstrong, why are they going faster? Like, how can you explain that? 
And the easy explanation is aerodynamics. We, aerodynamics has changed the game. So if you look at a mountain stage, the tour starts next week, you look at the mountain stages, they're all wearing aero clothing, semi-aero helmets. They all have aero wheels. They're not carrying, almost none of these bikes are down at the UCI legal weight limit anymore. They're usually above it because they want the most aero setup they can get. Because at their speeds, certainly, it makes a difference. But really, you know, there's all these kind of funny myths out there. Well, if you're not going a certain uh, speed, aero doesn't matter to you. And that's, that's all completely wrong. It doesn't matter how fast you're going. Aero matters to you. And the slower you are, the more it matters to you because the more you're out there, right? You're out there longer. So you might as well get as aero as you can get because <laughs> it's going to help you way more than the front of the pack athlete is because he or she is just not out there as long. So yeah, that's a really good point. matters to everybody. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, awesome. Well, any other questions? We've had them on. I mean, we could keep going for another three hours probably. But yeah. Uh, Right. Yeah. That's I think go, going back really quick to like the wheels and tires, um, you know, one thing is the aero setup of that, of that wheel tire combination, but then also the rolling resistance. And rolling resistance makes up for a lot of aero sins. So you can yeah. have a setup that's less aero, but is organically going to be faster for you just because of the rolling resistance. And that's, that's where I think the testing of the tire pressures comes into play. And that's where we need to go down that rabbit hole. Yeah. It's a big rabbit hole that I don't think we've just done a good enough job with yet. And it'll be done at some point, but I just don't, there's too many people involved in it right now that are trying to sell product. That's the problem. And and you've got to get those people out of there. And so you you need true independent testing and it's, it's tough to find because it's, it's, it's very time consuming. And so, like I said, if you're not paying me to do it, I'm not doing it because so, you know, I don't have that kind of time. So it's tough to do. But I will say this about the average, you know, middle of the pack, even front of the pack athlete. Heck, it happens with pros. Stop putting gator skins on your bike. Stop putting these flat resistance tires on your bike. You are killing yourself. You are killing yourself putting those tires on your bike, you are going so much slower than you should be going just because you don't want to change a flat. Learn how to change a flat. It's, it, it's way more important. So, yeah, I, I think going back to uh, Tom, Tom, a, I think um, when he calculated the gator skin versus like the, the yeah. top tires, it was like 20 watt difference yeah. per tire. So it's 40 watt difference. Yeah, huge. And, and TO actually rolled gator skins in Kona one year. That was, was what, like 17. It was, um, no, it wasn't T.O., someone else. Um, it wasn't him. It was, uh, it was an American though. I swear it was T.O. It was, no, it was, um, Andy Potts. Oh, Potts. Andy yes. Potts. Yeah, yes. Potts you're right. It. It was. And we all just were like, what are you doing, dude? Like, it's just crazy. And, and, uh, and, uh, yeah, well, that's why I need a second set of tires or yeah, rims, right? For training, like gator skins for have training. At it. <laughs> yeah. Have at it. You'll feel crazy fast on race day with, with your race tires. So. <laughs> That's pretty fun. Nah. You'll just get dropped at every ride. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that make it work harder. It's like putting yeah. rocks in the back. Well, I remember and... talking to you, Jim, about how you know you used to ride in the evenings and the wind and how yeah. you felt like it made you such a better rider because yeah. you were always pushing into the wind back when you were training. Yeah, and not just physically, but mentally. You know, it just made me so much stronger mentally to to push. I used to wait for the wind to come up in the afternoon so I could, I could get on that Santa Ana river trail and ride towards the ocean. And then when I got to, to Europe, I found that I was, a you know, here's this kid from Southern California that the worse the weather got, the better I got it. Was, and, and I couldn't explain it other than I had become so mentally tough from the wind that the, 
you know, the weather was just the wind in a different form, you know, and, and it just made me mentally so tough because it's so relentless on that Santa Ana river trail that so many people know. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, we appreciate you coming on, Jim. This was awesome. My pleasure. Anytime. I know your time is valuable. I can't wait to, I need to get out. We talked about it back when we did my testing and then I got hurt. Um, I know there's some tweaks that could still be done to my bike. I know we talked about dropping the front a little bit further. Um, and, uh, for me, it's, you know, where I'm trying to push this industry is, is not just aero testing, but bike fit needs to be done outdoors because, you know, and, and Holly got it last week where she said, this is so much better because you go to a wind tunnel or you're in a fit studio and you're like, yeah, that feels really good. And then you get out on the road and go, man, this doesn't feel so good after all. And so the way we do it is while you're testing it to make sure it works for you, we're testing it to make sure it works aerodynamically. We're not always choosing the most aero number. It's what's the best overall setup for you. And, and so that's the beauty of the system of what doing it this way is you actually get to feel that change and make sure it works for you. That's that's where I think the biggest difference is. Yeah, I think even with, when we first tested my uh, the Scoops Ultimate for the tri rig setup, and right when I got back, the first thing I said was, "I don't care if they're slower, I'm keeping it." Yeah. It's, they were that much more comfortable, <laughs> yeah. and I, I just felt like I could hold that position so much longer. Yeah. I mean, they did end up being faster, but um, you know, again, I think the thinking was even if I had the other Scoops in the same position, it would have probably been probably about the same, yeah. you know, or, or a wash or maybe even a little faster, but the scoops ultimate are just so comfortable that there's no way I was going back. Yeah, absolutely. And that, those are important things because I can put you in a crazy low drag position, but if you can't maintain it, what good does it do you? It doesn't do you any good at all. It's gotta be kind of, you know, why do you think everybody is tilting their arms? Is it more arrow? Yeah, it's more arrow. It's just way more comfortable as well. If you do it correctly, it's so much more comfortable that you'll stay in your arrow position longer. And so you'll you'll go faster for that reason as well. So that's a whole other story on how that all came about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we talked about that story. We may have to do that again later. Yeah, at that's some a whole point. different story. Sleeve suits. That's all. I'm, it's my fault. Sorry. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> it's my bad. I mean, when we when we first did our, our, our fitting, I didn't realize, and you've kind of alluded to it, that it is comfort as well because what you yeah. would i thought you'd take some measurements dial it in and be like this is the position but we did a lot of uh let me adjust it down is this better let me adjust it yeah. up is this better and it's just kind of back and forth right regardless of what the number was because you're like i know what the better number is you yeah. tell me which one feels better and then we'll figure out exactly it, which trade-off you want to make right that's exactly right and that's what we're trying to again outdoors now you can even feel it that much better you're not on a stationary trainer you're actually riding your bike you know imagine that and so it's just so much better yeah and i think also when we talked about it and i think i've told the story before but when we were testing the the water ball down the front with the camelback um immediately when i came back and i told jim this is gonna be the fastest run guaranteed it was yeah. an audible difference uh, you just didn't hear that wind resistance uh, around the body anymore. And and sure enough, it ended up being, yeah. you know, a good percentage faster yeah. and a far faster run by far. That's so but, ridiculous. Yeah. Yep. Well, awesome. Well, where can people find you, Jim? Um, well, uh, you can go to uh, our website, which is, uh, well, we're going to have a new website soon, but arrow dash. So E-R-O, uh, we pronounce it arrow, E-R-O dash sports dot com is our is our main website 
Um, we are creating a faster fiction website, uh, so that'll be up soon. And lo and behold, the guy on the front page is a guy named Tony Macias. So, nice. <laughs> um, so anyways, uh, um, and then uh, you can find us on Instagram at Aerosports, E-R-O Sports. Uh, we post a lot of stuff there, uh, we tend to, and, and more and more of the YouTube stuff. So our next YouTube video will be the Silka Aero Socks and whether or not they actually make people faster. And then we'll do uh, calf sleeves a week or two after that. So the Silka Sock video hopefully will be out next week. And then we'll go to uh, calf sleeves after that. That's great. And now, so do you still recommend doing like a pre-bike fit? Because I know yes. Aero is still in the velodrome, but yeah, that's, so, is that separate from you or so how is Aero that now? Sports still exists. Um, we have two locations, one in, in LA at the velodrome and one in Pennsylvania, but they're independently owned. Uh, it looks like we'll be opening more uh, within the year, uh, including out of country. Um, so um, I think, you know, probably not your audience, but people in Texas should probably be, uh, be looking for an aerosport soon. And people in Florida. We got listeners in the Ukraine, soon. man. There you go, man. <laughs> not no Ukraine yet, but, uh, but uh, Australia, uh, I think we'll see an aerosports in January and uh, we'll just go from there. That's awesome. So then from there, they can find you if they want to do the outdoor, uh, outdoor test. Yeah. And that's really where you're specialized. You can, I, I'm still handling the Instagram. Uh, we'll probably create a new Instagram account too, but you can hit me up there too. Um, I'm the one that answers those messages. And so, um, yeah, I'm happy to help. And, and it, it really, uh, it's all going the way we want. We're even creating a new motion capture system that we hopefully will have by the end of summer that will actually allow us to measure your biomechanics while you're riding outside. And that'll be a complete game changer. Oh, wow. Um, because we'll also be able to uh, measure your run biomechanics while you're actually running, not on a treadmill, but when you're actually running. And so uh, all those things we'll be able to do here very soon. We're just so enticingly close and it's just a software issue right now, just getting that developed, so. That's great, that's exciting. Yeah, that, that's a game changer. That'll change everything for us once we have the motion capture uh, for real world use. Because right now, no matter what, every system is based on a camera, right? In one way or another, even retool is camera based. And so uh, we need to get away from that. Yeah. Sweet. Well, I'm going to be hitting you up soon. Yeah, get out there anytime, with you. man. Let me know. I'm always out there. They should probably charge me rent for that spot we use uh, out on the Santa Ana River Trail, Yorba Regional Park. But, uh, we'll no one has ever actually questioned what we're doing. We're out there almost every day. No one's ever asked us anything. So That's funny. Well, we'll get out there and uh, I'll shoot some video as well. Yeah, that'd be fun. Anytime, yeah. I'm, I'm finally learning how to use a camera. I finally, I can finally focus. It <laughs> was the hardest thing. It's like, screw it. I'm going to use a GoPro. <laughs> but I finally got my Sony to, I figured out how to focus. Part of it is my old man eyes. I can't see anything anymore. So I just got a, I got an exterior, an external monitor. It made it a lot easier. <laughs> oh my God. That is the worst. I'm looking it's, through the viewfinder on my camera and it's like, no, it's out of focus. It's like, no, yeah. it's your eyes that are out of focus. <laughs> Even the little <laughs> tiny screen. I just, I'm sorry. I can't see that. And even with glasses on, it's so hard, but man, the external monitor changed everything for me. It was awesome. So I'm still no good. I don't know what I'm doing, but at least it's focused and looking bad instead of not focused and looking bad. And there's only so many ways you can video someone 
going by you anyways, right? Like it's kind of <laughs> tough to, uh, to get that, to, to mix it up a little bit. But yeah. I'm, I'm curious to see what Sean does with the content he, he captured, right? He's yeah. kind of trying to jump behind trees to get yeah, different footage yeah. and, and, you know, have some dynamic views. Well, um, I think for your drone footage is probably going to help him a lot just to mix things up because yeah, it's, you know, it's the same picture and the same video over and over again. It's pretty yeah. fun. Yeah. It was cool. Funny. Tony was telling us the story that the, the drone couldn't actually keep up. Right, you get some of these. Elite oh, was it struggling to keep so up with her? She was quick, man. Holly's quick. Yeah. So Holly, uh, you know, I know we're dragging on here. Sorry, everybody. But oh, we can go as Holly, long as you want. Holly <laughs> probably now has. I, I, I've been racking my brain for the last couple of days. Holly probably now has the lowest drag number of any triathlete. Period. Maybe Ann Haug might be lower, but even then, I don't. I don't think her setup is really optimal. Holly might be the lowest drag number ever. We found her a ton of savings and. And uh, it was really kind of fun. So, um, yeah, I think she has the lowest drag number out there. So my my next big uh, um, my next big uh, challenge is probably going to be Taylor Nib. At least I I hope that's uh, I do a lot of track athletes, so I, I'm hoping they're bringing her to me uh, because that girl needs a ton of work. But don't don't tell that to the other ladies because they and she's they don't fast want, as hell already, her. right? They wanted her. So it's funny. <laughs> Holly said this. You know, they wanted her to do really, really well at the national time trial championship, so she would leave triathlon and go to cycling because they are they know they can't beat her. And so, um, you know, anytime Taylor Nibs in the race, you're racing for second. That's just the way it is, and that's there. Unfortunately, she's got every woman beat at the start line. Like they all know they can't beat her. Man, ultra talented, ultra talented. Well, so, that's cool. I'm looking forward but to Holly's aerodynamically video. a mess. Just a mess. Oh, <laughs> just hurts my eyes. <laughs> no, I was going to go the same route. I just aerodynamically, she's she's probably the one of the worst pros out there. Yeah, um, she's probably, uh, you know, she's probably given up. Oh my god, I can't even, I can't begin to think how much she's given up to everybody else, and still killing them, still crushing them. That's how much power she has. So she's. You know, she's putting out a good 70 watts more than any other female at race pace, at least. That's how good she is. That's that's a massive amount of wattage when you think about it. And, and uh, yeah, she's able to do it. So good for I her. I mean, she's only been on a tri bike like a year, right? Or yeah, something, no, she right? <laughs> looks awful. She's going to be a tough – like not everybody fits really naturally to a tri bike. Like not everybody looks good. You don't all have to look good. So she's going to she's going to be a tough fit. She's a little gangly and like you know, um, but ugh, man, right now that's a that's that's a hot mess going down the road right there, man. It, it could be way better. <laughs> hot fast mess. Yeah, she's fast, man. <laughs> Woo, watch out. Well, she, well cool. she might need you sooner than later if she's going to be joining some grand tour stuff, right? Oh, yeah. I don't know. She just to be honest with you, I I don't know that she has that kind of talent. She's. She's, you know, people are like, oh, she got fourth. She lost 34 seconds in 23 kilometers. That ain't good. That's a beatdown. And so it was raining. So for me, I, I don't really take those numbers too seriously anyways. Like I said, Chloe Deigert, who won, was going just fast enough to win. She, she was going as slow as she could possibly go just to win that thing. So, um so really, she would have beat Taylor by well over a minute if she just went all out. That's just Chloe, but no one compares to Chloe Dagger. She's a, she's phenomenal. So I don't know that she has it. It'd be fun to watch. Um, she's young, so who knows? But man, the female cycling is really picked up. I mean, the 
the the girls are you know now that they're actually getting paid to ride bikes um the the talent level is just skyrocketing now and especially the the belgians and the the um you know these ladies coming out of the the dutch coming out of the netherlands are ultra talented unbelievable and so yeah you're going to see that pick up more and more for sure um over the next few years. So yeah, you're going to, these girls are going to start putting out near 400 Watts, like no joke. They're going to put out some big numbers to, to be at the front. That's a lot of Watts for a woman. No offense, ladies. Yeah. That is a lot of Watts. Yeah. That's it's coming. That's awesome. Well, thanks guys. Thank you, Jim. It's always entertaining. I knew this was going to be great because every time I would do a fit with you or whatever, it's just it's, I just it's, shut it's up. awesome. No, it's great, right? <laughs> all these stories, all these stories. I love it. Yeah. I've been around a long time. That's the problem. That's like what be, I used to be a cop. I used to tell people, you always invite one cop to a party because they've got great stories, but never invite two because they'll just go off by themselves and talk. They won't entertain, <laughs> they won't entertain anybody. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, in the future, we may have to have you on again if you have some time for us. Uh, Anytime. We can we'll always have fun critiquing people's positions on, on in the pro ranks, and uh, <laughs> and that's always fun to do. Yeah, well, nice. so I'll, I'll go work with you, and then you can come on, and you can give all the, the, yeah. the dirt we'll on me and how much. Yeah. We'll uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Well, thank you very much. Uh, for those of you who are listening, you can find us online at ocendurance.com and oc-endurance on Instagram. So thanks, guys. Thanks, Austin. Thanks, Tony. Thanks. It was week. great. All yeah. right. See you next week. See you guys. <laughs>